church, but I do think that, uh, that John the Baptist beat me out today, so, um, but it has been a great week, so thank you for all of your parents, uh, those of you here who both volunteered or um, allowed your child to come and be a part of this, it was a great time, so um, we are continuing now, uh, we continue our look at the uh, story of Joseph, if you've not been with us, we've been kind of navigating through the story of Joseph over the last several weeks, and one thing I've learned um, through this uh, series is that the next time we do this, um, we're going to take about twice as long to go through it, because it's a lot of material every time, and this time, it's a lot of scripture, even for this series. So I am just warning you that this is going to be a lengthy scripture, but it's a story, so hopefully it will uh, captivate you. This this is kind of a critical part. Um, we only have two more Sundays that we're going to be looking at this story of Joseph. And so, uh, well, we have this Sunday and then two more. And so, um, but this is a critical part. So I hope and pray that you will um, listen to this remarkable um, part of the story of Joseph and his brothers. So you'll recall that the brothers had finally talked Jacob, their father, into allowing Benjamin uh, to come with them back to Egypt, just as Joseph had required them in order to retrieve their last brother, Simeon, who was in prison. And so with that, the story continues. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It is because of the money replaced in our sacks the first time that we have been brought in so that we might have an opportunity to fall upon us, to make slaves of us, and to take our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the entrance to the house. They said, Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each one's money in the top of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back with us. Moreover, we have brought down with us additional money to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, rest assured, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your sacks for you. I have received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the steward had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon. For they had heard that they would dine there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present that they had carried into the house and bowed to the ground before him. He inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and did obeisance. Then he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And with that, Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with affection for his brother and he was about to weep. So he went into a private room and wept there. 
Then he washed his face and he came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the meal. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And when they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth, the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with foods as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the top of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the top of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. And when they had gone only a short distance from the city, Joseph said to his steward, Go, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you returned evil for good? Why have you stolen my silver cup? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? Does he not indeed use it for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. And when he overtook them, he repeated these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants that they should do such a thing. Look, the money that we found at the top of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Why then would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Should it be found with any of your servants, let him die. Moreover, the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves." He said, even so, in accordance with your words, let it be. He with whom it is found shall become my slave, but the rest of you shall go free. Then each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then each one loaded his donkey. And they returned to the city. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. God, we give you praise for joy, for the energy of children, for the reminders, God, of how you are always doing a new thing, how you are always creating new life. We give you praise for that. And we pray, God, that you would be with us in these next few minutes. The words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So one of the things that you do a lot of during a VBS is you do a lot of laughing. And I've always enjoyed laughter. I think it's a good thing to laugh, of course. But one of the things that I have wrestled with throughout my life is laughing at inappropriate times. Uh, I, I, I'm someone who just continually, it seems, I laugh at things that, that I probably shouldn't laugh at, right? And so when, when someone trips or falls, right? I mean, I know I should be, you know, as a pastor, you know, the first thing I should do is just be concerned. But honestly, oftentimes before I want to say, are you okay? I have to kind of swallow some laughter, right? Because seeing people trip is 
It's, well, it's not funny, but it kind of is sometimes, right? If it's somebody young, right? There's just something, right? And all the time when I was growing up, right, I, I struggled with it. I was always getting in trouble with it. I sang in several different choirs, and for some reason, right, part of it's the anxiety, but when I would sit up there at, at, in front of the choir, I would always find myself wanting to laugh, right? If somebody messed up, right? Even if it was me, I would want to start laughing, and then I would try to stop laughing because everyone was staring at me, but I really couldn't stop laughing then. And even though the choir director, right, I had a mean kind of high school choir director. I could see how angry he was, but the redder he got, the more I laughed because he was red. And that was funny to me. And so I would just keep laughing, right? I would be sweating. I would be trying to not laugh, but I couldn't help it, right? Uh, one of the, my sister is with me this weekend, and, and one of the stories from our youth that she continues to hold over me is, um, <clears throat> is when we had both gotten punished when we were children, right? And when you got punished back in the day for doing something wrong, you got you got spanked. That's exactly right, right? And so we had both gotten spanked, right? And we had to go, and I forget why, what, what had happened. My guess is that she had done something wrong. And so, we, um, and so we had to go, and we had to apologize to my mom for whatever it was. And as we were saying we were sorry, something struck me as funny. And so I started to laugh, and this made my dad furious, right? And so what happened? Well, we had to be spanked again, but not just me, right? My sister had to be spanked as well again, even though she didn't do anything wrong, which I continue to think is really funny. And so, so these are the problems, right? And so, so whenever I read Scripture, oftentimes it seems to me I find things in Scripture that I think are funny, but nobody else really thinks are that funny. But I, I laugh anyways, right? Like last week, we were talking about as they were uh, bringing, as Jacob said, okay, here's all the different things that you need to bring to, to Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph, but to the harsh man, right, in order to try to get some more food, right? There were pistachio nuts and almonds, right? And one of those things, of course, that they were supposed to bring was gum, right? And that makes me laugh, right? I mean, just think about it. You've got these caravans of donkeys, and on top of them all, you have these big packs of bubblicious that are there, right? I mean, just picturing that, right, it, it kind of causes me to chuckle, right? And so, and, and I was thinking about that for this week, too, because here's, you've got this high-pressure situation, right? You've got a lot of pressure, right? The, the, the brothers, they finally have talked Jacob into allowing Ben Benjamin to come with them, right? So they have this precious commodity, the youngest son, and they're coming, right? And they're hoping to get their brother Simeon has been in jail for such a long time, and so they're hoping and they're praying that they can release Simeon, and, or, and, and they're having to come for a man who's very harsh, and so they're nervous about that, and, and, and they're hopeful to get food, because if they don't get food, then, then their whole families are going to starve. They're dependent on them, and so there's a lot of pressure, and you can just imagine they're sitting there, and they're outside the home of this man and so they're nervous right and they've got anxieties and they know that this man could do anything to them and so they say to him what happens you know maybe they're just trying to trick us that's why he's inviting us into his homes perhaps they're going to make us slaves which is understandable but then do you notice what else they said they're going to make us slaves and they might take away our donkey that's funny. I mean, who starts with they're going to make us slaves? You always crescendo. Not only are they going to make us slaves, they're also going to steal our 
donkeys, right? I mean, how weird is that, right? That's not what you should be worried about at this moment. Be worried that you're going to be killed. Be worried you're going to be made a slave. It'll probably be the least of your worries if they steal your donkeys, right? But it reveals in many ways, I think, this kind of warped thinking that they have at this time, where they begin to be worried about everything, right? We've talked about how anxiety can warp the way we see things, right? One commentator mentions that, that, that when you are guilty, even an act of hospitality can appear threatening to you, right? And this is completely where they are. They are anxious, they are worried, they are nervous, right? So that all they can think about is what's going to happen if someone steals their donkeys, right? And their anxiety continues because the, the steward comes out, right? And as soon as the steward comes out, they just Quickly. They begin to talk really fast, like John the Baptist, right? They begin to talk very quickly because they are nervous that something is going to happen. And so they begin to say to the steward, okay, look, before you say much, let me tell you something. Let me explain this to you. Here's what happened. We got back and the day after, and all of a sudden, we saw that there was all this money in there. And you got to understand, we didn't do that. Please, you have to understand, that was not our intended purpose, right? We did not realize we had that money. So as soon as we got back, we decided to come back, and we brought that money plus new money in order to be able to get more grain. How does that sound? The steward, right? The steward says, peace. Literally, he said, shalom to them. Don't worry about it. He said, I don't know. He said, we got our money. I said, this must be God. Your God must have done this. Right? Which is always this great reminder of how significant other people in the community are. Because so many times we cannot see how God is at work in our lives and we need other people to be able to point that out. Especially when we are going through dark and difficult times. Because again, when we are anxious about things, it is easy for us to focus on the problem and not be able to see that God is at work. But here, just like with the steward, there is a time when he can say to the brothers, you may not see this, but God is is at work. So then Jacob, he finally, or Joseph, he finally comes in, right? But before he comes in, and I love this part as well, uh, before, I think it's funny, before he comes in, we're told that they, is, they are readying the present. They get the present ready, right? And can't you just kind of picture that? All right, Benji, you know, Benji, hold, hold your finger right there on the ribbon. Judah, Judah's good at making bows. All right, there we go. We got, we got bow. Okay, this is looking good. We're readying the present. It's looking good. Let's see here. We need something else. What do we need? Ah, the bubblicious. We need the bubblicious. Let's put that right on top, right? And if we do it and if we make it look beautiful and perfect, then there's no way that this mean man will not give us food, right? And so they have all this anxiety. They get everything ready. And then Joseph walks in, right? And as soon as he walks in, they bow to him. And if you carefully paid attention, they bow to him again, right? Two bows, which again, as we've talked about, right? You have to kind of, you don't have to hit us over a sledgehammer with this. What do people think about when they think about bowing well where is that sledgehammer when they think about bowing in the story of Joseph what do you think about what are you reminded of the dream exactly right right so in other words here we are towards the end of the dream or the end of the story, and you look back again and you remember that God has been there and has been there the whole time. 
right? How often is it that after you have gone through a struggle, only then can you begin to look back and see how God has been there the whole time, amen? And so Joseph comes in and he tries to keep his cool, dispassionate manner, right? He talks about, oh, how's your father doing? And then he says, then he looks over, right? He says, oh, um, is this the youngest son that you were telling me about? I say, yeah, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is Benjamin. But all of a sudden, right, Joseph, even though he was trying to be as, as serious and as regal as possible, the veil, the, 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 the facade that he had set up begins to crack, right? And all of a sudden, he can't hold it in, so he runs out and he begins to weep. I feel like that's a, that's a fascinating kind of reminder again that, that, that no matter how much Joseph wanted, no matter how much pain those brothers had put him in, no matter how much he had struggled over many, many years, that there is still this intimate connection between Joseph and his brothers. That no matter how much he may have wanted to cut off his family, that he could not. I know that that is the case for so many of us, so many of us who struggle with our own families, and at times we want to just cut them off. We want to just say, oh, we don't care anymore. Just forget it. The reality is we are always connected to those families, no matter how much we may at times want to run away from them. The reality for Joseph is that they are always his brothers, that Jacob is still his father, that Canaan is still his Finally, he gathers himself and he goes back into the room and they begin to eat. And as we've talked about a lot over the last couple of years, right, eating is a huge thing in the scripture, right? There's a, there's a level of intimacy. There's a level of connection that happens when you eat. And so they're eating together and you can imagine that things are going really well for them, that they have to be so excited, the brothers, because, you know, just moments before, minutes before, they thought perhaps we're going to be made uh, slaves, perhaps even our donkeys are going to be stolen. But now, everything is going well. The Hebrew, in fact, says really literally that they were getting drunk, that they were partying basically together, that they were having a massive celebration. There they are. And you can imagine if you've been living through famine for so long that there you see this abundance of food, how they must have been eating. I mean, as if, you know, this was the last day of their life, eating. Everything was going splendidly. What could possibly go wrong now? The next morning, they leave and they are full. Their bellies are full. The bags are full of food. They have almost the full contingent of brothers now that they have Simeon and Benjamin with them. Right? They have their donkeys. Everything is great. But there is one more test. Because Joseph, of course, has put the silver cup or had the silver cup put in Benjamin's sack. And so the brothers, they all begin to leave. They think things are going well, but we're told they do not get far until all of a sudden the steward goes out with the Egyptians and they capture them and they say, where are you going? Why have you stolen from Joseph? I hope, I hope that as you read this or as you heard this, that you caught 
what happens here. Because this is yet one more kind of sign of the brothers beginning to be transformed. Because did you notice what they didn't do? They didn't say, no, I don't know. What are you talking about? I didn't do that. I don't think, did he do that? I don't know. They didn't start all of a sudden becoming about their own selves. Did you notice what they do? They all of a sudden, they begin talking, not like individuals, not like they are out for themselves only as they have been throughout much of the story, but they start talking as a family. They start saying, no. They have trusted one another at long last. Nobody here would have done that. None of my brothers would have done that. In fact, they say, if that happens, then that person will be killed and all of us will become your slaves. In other words, we are sticking together. We will pay whatever consequences it is for for all of us, even if it's just one person, that we will take that all ourselves. It's no longer just this person or that person or who can I blame. It is we are in this together. The steward seems like he's almost caught off guard, really. Perhaps Joseph has been telling him already about his brothers and how horrible they are and how much they are just for themselves because he says, well, well, you know, I know we don't need all that. No one needs to die over this. It's just a cup, really. So he goes, you know, really, why don't you, um, you know, we'll just take that one person as a slave and the rest of you can just go. The rest of you can just go on back home with your food. It's not that big of a deal. We'll just take the one. So they begin to go through the bags. Of course, you can imagine the tension is beginning to rise as they get closer and closer to Benjamin's. And before you know it, there they are, and they begin to take out this cup. Can you imagine how, as soon as they take out that cup, what that scene must have been like? Benjamin's mouth agape. The steward wondering what the brothers will do. Joseph, I picture him back at his house, wanting, looking out, staring out the window towards the direction where the brothers are, wondering what is happening. As one commentator puts it, the conditions are ripe for one more betrayal. But the sound that we hear at this Moment are not the sound of words, which is somewhat surprising because the brothers have always been more than excited to use words. They've always been more than excited to begin to come up with reasons why they hate their brother. They've always been excited to use words to say, well, here's how we can kill him. Here's how we can get rid of him. They've been more than ready to use words to say, here's the excuse we'll give to our father as to why he's dead. They've been more than happy to use words to blame someone else for what's happened, including God. But in this moment, there are no words that are spoken. The silence is deafening, except it's not complete silence. In fact, it seems to me that there is one sound that we begin to hear. It is the sound of clothes beginning to be torn. It is, in many ways, the most heart-wrenching, excruciating, horrible sound that you can hear. It is a sound of utter despair and loss. 
It is the, the sound, really, and if you picture it, it is the sound that reveals what is going on within somebody at this moment. That those who are outside may not be able to be inside and to see it and to feel it, but you can hear in the anguish of the ripping at the anguished hands of the men the pain and the fear and the loss. It is a horrible sound. And yet it seems to me that in our story, ironically enough, it may also be the most hopeful, beautiful sound that we have yet heard. Because when that clothes, when those clothes begin to be torn, it is an image of the fact of the reality of the vulnerability and the fragility of these brothers. For the first time, we began to see it a little bit with Judah last week, but for the first time, all of the brothers finally, rather than just saying we're going to keep running, we're going to keep denying, finally, all of a sudden, they say there is nothing else we can do. We can't hide any longer. We can simply tear and allow you to see our hearts. And it's also made beautiful by what the next set of sounds are, which are the turning of footsteps, the turning of hooves, because all of a sudden you hear them walking, but not to Canaan, but back to Egypt, back to the place where new hope, where reconciliation, where new life can finally begin. Those two sounds of tearing and turning are new sounds in this story. And as we will begin to see next week, it is because of the tearing and the turning that all of a sudden, a new world begins to emerge. And I think the significance of that is that tearing and turning is not just seen in this particular story. It's actually seen throughout the scripture. There is always tearing and turning because the gospel is always about tearing and turning. Think about this. In our own lives, personally, when it comes to our own lives in Christ, it is always about tearing and turning. Tearing, the tearing of the facade that most of us have put up that says we can do this on our own, that we don't need anybody else, that we basically are almost as good as it gets, that we really, right, we kind of put ourselves here on this earth, that we can do that. Most of us have this facade, right, that says that we have it all together. And what the gospel does is it begins to tear that facade. It says, no, you do not have this all together, that you are struggling, that you do need somebody else, that you did not create yourself, but that someone else created you. The gospel tears through the facade that we have in order to get to the heart of who we are that says we need the love and the grace of God. This is what the gospel does. It tears at us. But then the gospel always calls us not just to be torn, but to turn, to begin to walk in a different direction, to begin to see things differently, to walk, as we kept hearing for our VBS song, into the light of the world who is Jesus the Christ. The gospel is always about tearing away our facade and turning to Christ and walking in a different direction. And what you need to know is that that's not just something that happens to you prior 
privately, that it is very personal, but that the gospel always touches every part of our lives and every part of the world. Every part has to be torn and be turned. So what happens when you have a disagreement with one another? Let's begin in the church. When you have a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ, literally what is happening is that you have a wall that has gone up between you and you are turned against one another in with that wall. And what the gospel says is, is if you're supposed to love your neighbor, you have to tear down that wall, which means being honest, which means being vulnerable, which means confessing at times, which means forgiving at other times, in the hopes that you can then begin to turn in the same direction in the mission of God, to be torn and to turn. It's why we brought up two weeks ago the racial issues that we have been wrestling with because the gospel touches every area and it questions how can we be torn, how can we turn, right? And so we have to ask ourselves in the midst of the racial strife that we are in, what are those walls that are up between us, whether they be literal walls or figurative walls, and how can we tear them down? What do we need to do? How do we need to confess? What do we need to do to be vulnerable so that we can then go and be with those who look different than us and be turned and walk in the same direction, right? What is the Who's Your Neighbor series that we did? That was all about tearing and turning, tearing down the literal or figurative walls, right? We've talked about a number of times what happens, why, why are we often so often inhibited in going out and loving our neighbors because of our blasted garages, right? And because of the air conditioning, right? I mean, it's well known that neighboring began to plummet when we got garages and air conditioners. Why? What separates us from our neighbors? Literal walls. And so we as Christians, because we can't be content with that, because we're a people of the gospel, which means that we believe in tearing and turning, means that we have to figure out ways to get past those literal walls, that we have to figure out ways to get past the walls of fear or time, any of those things, in order to actually see where the gospel may be at work in our neighborhoods, that we can then begin to turn and journey together. Right? This is what we talk about when it comes to loving our neighbors. Or even VBS. One of the things I love about VBS is how many people are here that I do not recognize. And I know that by and large they're never here except for VBS. Or they may never have been here before. And some of them, to be sure, are from other churches. And that's great. And that's, I love that. Let them come. Let's celebrate together. That's wonderful. But some of them, my guess is, are also kids perhaps who never have come inside of a church or who do not yet know the light of the world. And one of the questions that we're always wrestling with, I think, as leadership are, what are the different ways that we can tear down the walls between the church and the community to which we are a part? VBS is one of those things that does a great job, right? Because it begins to tear down some of those walls so that kids can come in and we can begin to love them and care for them and to reflect the love of Christ, right? All those questions, right, that we're always asking, how can we make sure, right? Why do I always say, why am I always talking about the fact that the church is not just what happens here at 4775 West 116th Street in Zionsville, Indiana? Why do we always talk about that? Because we've got to tear down these walls. It's a part of the reason, let me be real honest with you, it's a part of the reason why I love that we have windows. Now, this is not to be a jab, but it is just to say that I love that we have windows. Now, there's one thing I hate about the fact that we have windows, which is that this blasted cardinal is always bouncing off this window over here, right? But what I love about it 
is that you can always see out there. And you can realize that what we're doing in here matters outside the walls. Tearing and turning. Tearing and turning. Now next week we'll begin to see what happens because they tore and because they were turned. But I don't want you to wait till next week. I want you to begin thinking about this today. In what ways do we need to be torn and turned? Right? For some of us, it may very well be that we have kind of just said, you know what, we can do this on our own. We don't need anything else. We don't need anybody else. I've got this figured out. And maybe this is the day for you to tear that facade to say, no, you know what? Maybe I didn't create myself. Maybe I do need God. Maybe I I do need to realize that just like the brothers, I struggle and I fail again and again. And maybe today's the day that I need to, to tear that facade and to begin to turn and walk with God. For others, it may be that you've done that before, but maybe you've not really become a part of a community. And this is a community, perhaps, where you can actually tear down that wall between you and a church community and to begin to turn and feel what it's like to walk together as, as mistaken and as flawed as we are, to walk together towards Christ. For others, perhaps it's a relationship. And usually, you know, these are the kinds of things I never have to give much description of because it's always the first person that comes to mind. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody here. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend with whom you need to say, this wall has been built. Is there a way for us to tear that and to begin to turn and walk in the same direction? I don't know who it is for you. I don't know what it is for you. But my hope and my prayer is that perhaps even today, That you will begin to take the steps that it takes to be torn and to turn. And no matter how long it's taken, even if it's taken years like it did the older brothers, that perhaps today you can begin to hear the gospel, the sound of the gospel, torn and turned. Torn and turned. Torn and turned. May it be so. Amen. And let's pray.